As always, it is a great joy for me to be able to minister the Word of God to you this morning. And we're going to do something a little bit different rather than our typical exposition of a, pa- of a passage. We're going to be jumping around all over the place. So um, I'm not sure you're going to be able to take too many notes, but that's okay. Most all of the verses, I believe, will be on the board here. Uh, but this morning, I want to take you on a historical journey of Christ's public and private ministry. I never tire of proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ, and I, I hope you don't either. And we want to look at this in a, in a historical way and then go into the Word and look at some passages that speak to this. But like the, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so hopefully this will help you know him better uh, today. And certainly given all of the chaos, I mean, every time you turn on the news, you just shake your head. It's, it's unbelievable the level of satanic darkness that is enveloping our nation and frankly the world. And the winds of deception portend to even a greater time of persecution that's going to come upon the church. All the more reason for us to run to Christ and to know more of him and trust more in him. And remember that there is nothing that can thwart the purposes of God. He is going to build his church even though at times we wonder. Nothing catches him by surprise including evil and suffering. I want you to remember that our God is a sovereign God, not a contingent God. He doesn't wait to see what's going to happen and then think, oh my, I need to react to this. There is therefore nothing in our life that he has not ordained to allow or accomplish. There's nothing that he is not aware of, including our sufferings, our tragedies, even the atrocities that we might experience. And I know that this can be a real comfort to a number of you who are struggling in some serious ways. We know that according to Isaiah 46.10, he declares the end from the beginning. He declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I hope you find comfort in that. Moreover, as Daniel described him, he says, God is the one who does according to his will in Daniel 4.35. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And in these and many other verses, we see that God leaves no doubt as to his sovereign rule over all of his creation He indeed is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And I want to remind you as well that authentic faith must and will be tested. And so we can all look to that and rejoice in it. Romans 8, beginning in verse 28, we read, And we know that God causes all things to work together. For good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what a comfort it is to know that no matter how difficult our situation, how hopeless we might feel in the midst of whatever tragedy is going on, to know that God is in absolute authority over all things and his purpose for our eternal welfare and his ultimate majesty are never in question. Dear Christian, as we read in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, which can be translated before time began. Paul goes on to say, but now he has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, in evangelicalism around the world, we see that people come together this Sunday and next Sunday to celebrate what's called Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, where we celebrate the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for all who put their trust in him. The general facts concerning his death and his burial and his resurrection are fairly familiar to most Christians. But I fear the profound significance of Jesus' life and of his ministry, especially as they unfold in the final week of his life, are largely unknown to most Christians. Therefore, I wish to take you on a historical journey of Jesus' public and private ministries that were designed to ultimately take him to the cross, take him to the grave, rise from the dead, ascend back to glory until he returns again. So first of all, I'm going to give you some big picture um, history about Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. And I wish for that to put into perspective five events that occurred during the Passion Week of Christ. Five events, and this will help us better grasp the profound significance of his voluntary death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. So we will be looking at, number one, his messianic presentation, his messianic proclamation, preparation, propitiation, and pronouncement. And I pray that this will be edifying and encouraging to you. So let me give you some history here of Jesus' ministry. Jesus began his public ministry after 30 years of obscurity, and his public ministry lasted about three and a half years. The first two and a half years, you might say, were his public presentation. This began with the ministry of the forerunner, John the Baptist, who announced the arrival of the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. That lasted for about three to five months. 
During this two and a half year period, Jesus sought the crowds. He performed many miracles. He was traveling throughout the land of the Jews, saturating every area with his claims to be their Messiah, to be the incarnate Son of God. And of course, he validated these claims with all of the miracles that he performed. We know that he began in Judea by cleansing the temple in Jerusalem during Passover season. He was there about eight months. And at that time, John the Baptist is arrested and Jesus then departs for Galilee, passing through Samaria on, on the way where he dealt with the woman at the well. He then spent about 18 months in Galilee where most of the Jews actually lived, seeking the crowds, again, making his claim to be their Messiah, God in flesh, working miracles. But despite the irrefutable truths of what he was proclaiming and what he was doing, Israel rejected his offer of the kingdom. Now, Jesus discerned their unbelief, but the disciples did not. And during that period, he experienced the official rejection of the leaders of Israel, which is the unpardonable sin of Matthew 12. Moreover, there was a popular rejection of the people, even after the feeding of the 5,000, as we read about in John 6 and so forth. At that point, Jesus then shifted from a public presentation to a private preparation, which lasted about a year. The first six months, he sought privacy. He avoided doing miracles. He avoided the crowds and attracting the crowds. And he fled from areas where the Jews um, would typically travel. And he would go through non-Jewish territories like Syrophoenicia and Decapolis and Caesarea Philippi and so forth. And this was a time of training for the Twelve. And frankly, he spent most of his time with three of the Twelve. A great principle that if you want to really train people, you go deep with a few rather than shallow with many. So that's what Jesus did. And he had been speaking openly. He had been speaking plainly, but now he begins to speak in parables. And these parables were an act of divine judgment that kept those who loved darkness in that state. It was a judicial hardening, but it was also an act of mercy because it kept people from being exposed, exposed to even more truth that they had rejected, which would only increase their condemnation which, by the way, is a great burden of mine for those of you who sit here week after week and you hear the gospel, you know the truths of the gospel, and yet you reject it in your heart. You're storing up more condemnation for yourself. Well, towards the end of this period of private preparation, we see that Jesus begins to find solitude with his apostles and openly foretells of his death for the first time. And then to encourage his forlorn um, apostles and reinforce their wavering faith, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. And somehow, in a miraculous way, he peels back his flesh and lets the effulgence of his Shekinah blaze forth to help them see that indeed this is the Son of God.
Then during the last six months of this season of private preparation, which would have been about six months prior to his crucifixion, Jesus spent his time in and around Jerusalem. In November, we see that he attends the Feast of Tabernacles. In December, he attends the Feast of Dedication. And then he flees to Perea to avoid being captured, for his time had not yet come, as he said. Next, the sister of Lazarus, you will recall, sins for him. And in February, he goes to the village of Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. This occurred about six to eight weeks before the Passion Week. And this miracle, of course, absolutely electrified the Jews. Word of this spread everywhere. And that's exactly what Jesus intended it to do, as you will see. And he really set up his triumphal entry that would soon follow. After this miracle, Jesus once again found seclusion in Ephraim, um, a little wilderness village uh, just uh, north of Jerusalem, a few miles. And there he remained hidden from his enemies until he makes his final trip into Jerusalem for the Passover. No one knew where Jesus was. And the question all of the people were asking was simply this, is he going to come to Jerusalem for Passover? John 11, 56, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Meanwhile, the Jewish leaders had already committed themselves to murdering him. So they were waiting for their opportunity. At this point, Jesus and his disciples left Ephraim and they take a rather lengthy route They travel all the way across the Jordan to Perea. They traveled along the Jordan Rift, if you know anything about the geography of the land. And he did this for a reason, because that was the the pathway that the Jewish people would take to avoid Samaria. And this way, he could spend more time with them and get them excited about who he was. And so he traveled with them to the Passover feast where he would ultimately be the Passover lamb. An amazing thought. So this gave him more contact with the Jewish pilgrims. When he arrives in Jerusalem, we see something fascinating occur. Once again, he takes on the mantle of Messiah very publicly. He once again resumes a very public ministry of teaching and miracle worker working. And he openly confronts the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, openly, in their face. And on the way, he heals ten lepers. He preaches the eminence of the coming kingdom. You will recall he preaches about divorce. He preaches about um, children entering into the kingdom of God. He challenged the rich young ruler that you will recall... uh, uh, went away empty because he refused to forsake all and follow Jesus. He privately speaks to his 12 apostles and clearly foretells of his impending death and resurrection. And during that time, he rebukes James and John for their selfish ambition. So these are, this is just an overview of the types of things that were going on. Then he crosses the Jordan back into Judea. He enters into Jericho where he He healed uh, blind Bartimaeus and his companions. And then Jesus invited little Zacchaeus to faith, come down out of the tree. 
and he is radically converted. And then we could come to Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11 through the 20, verse 27, and he deals with the fickle Jews that thought he was about to establish the long-awaited kingdom. Surely that's what he's going to do now. But Jesus gives them the parable of the pounds uh, to deliberately dispel that notion. Now remember, the Jews were expecting him to save them from Rome. They didn't understand that they first needed to be saved from their sin. They could not grasp the idea of, of two comings separated by an undisclosed period of time. They couldn't grasp that although the mediatorial kingdom of Old Testament prophecy was, quote, at hand, as the Lord had announced, but because of their, of their unbelief, the fullness of the messianic blessing to Israel had to await his second coming. Now the nation must suffer many years of judgment for its unbelief. Well, finally, Jesus and the apostles make their way then to Bethany, where they had previously been, where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. John 12, 1 indicates that he arrived on Saturday, six days, it says, before the Passover. And there, as you will recall, Jesus is welcomed by Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and, and they serve a big feast, the people at Bethany do, and Mary anoints Jesus' feet, and then Jesus rebukes, um, well, actually, G Judas rebukes that, and Jesus rebukes Judas, and that was the final straw for Judas, and so he devises um, um, a plan, and he prepares himself uh, to betray Jesus. And while in Bethany with his friends, Jesus prepared himself for what was going to happen in just a few days. Imagine what would have been on his mind. And I would submit to you, and this is a miracle of miracles, that each of us who know and love Christ were on his mind in ways that we cannot imagine. Because when he went to the cross, he didn't just die for people in general, hoping that someday they would cash in on the atonement. He died for people specifically. Well, next, on Sunday, the first day of the week, the crowds gather again around the house of Lazarus, according to John 12, 9, to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. It's like, let's go see this dude, you know? This is the guy that was raised from the dead, so the crowds come. And obviously, Lazarus was a living testimony to, to Jesus' supernatural power. And this, this validated his claim that he was, he was God incarnate, God in flesh, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And so by sovereign design now, Jesus is bringing the crowd here. They're electric with excitement. And Jesus has deliberately laid the groundwork for everyone, both friend and foe, to see him appear in Jerusalem at the Passover. And of course the crowds again were certain that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was about to overthrow Rome and inaugurate the kingdom. All right, enough history. Point number one, we see his messianic presentation. This is what happens next. The next day as the crowds make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and coronate their Messiah King, 
Uh, Jesus and his apostles also make their way to Jerusalem. So it is more likely on a Monday that he goes through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. After Jesus had been, with, had been in Bethany with Lazarus, rather than the traditional Palm Sunday. In fact, according to John 12, verse 12 and following, we read, On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. A Monday triumphal entry is also very important because according to Exodus 12, verses 2 through 6, we read that Mosaic law required sacrificial lambs at Passover to be selected on the 10th day of the first month, taken into the home, that little lamb to be loved, until the sacrifice on the 14th. And only a Monday triumphal entry would fulfill that important symbolism. And we know that Jesus was crucified on the 10th of Nisan, uh, which was a Monday of the Passover week. And this would allow the Jews nationally to select Jesus as their Passover lamb, um, to symbolically take him into their hearts and homes, and then the sacrifice would occur on Friday the 14th of Nisan. And this amazing event also uh, was something that was no surprise to Jesus. We know that this was predicted. He knew it all along. According to Scripture, this was decreed by a sovereign God in eternity past. You will remember in our study of Daniel, 600 years before the day of our Lord's messianic presentation, it was predicted by Daniel the prophet. He didn't even fully understand what he was predicting. You remember in Daniel 9.25, we read how uh, the time for Artaxerxes' decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, literally seven sevens and 62 sevens, referring to weeks of years. So when you do the math, you have seven weeks, which is 49 years, plus 62 weeks. You add those together, you have 434 years. So 49 years plus 434 is 483, literally 69 sevens. Therefore, 483 years after Artaxerxes decreed for Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem, the Messiah, the Prince, was presented to the Jewish nation in Nisan 10, 30 A.D. Likewise, the triumphal entry, as we typically call it, even though it was a very humble entry, was predicted 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9. The text in Matthew quotes, quotes this in verse 5. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And even the meaning of the Messiah king's presentation had been foretold in Psalm 118, beginning in verse 21. Let me read that to you. 
I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I give thanks to thee. Thou art my God, I extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Of course, these words would be the very words spoken in praise by the multitudes when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. But knowing their ultimate rejection of him as their savior, Christ announced that the future fulfillment of this praise would occur at his second coming, as we read in Matthew 23, verse 39. So as Jesus, King Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and the crowds are all ecstatic, the crowds swell with, with sighs, they are frenzied with anticipation, They are shouting, according to Luke 19, verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But then the text says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. But then, in verse 41, Luke records a stunning event that puts this whole scenario in its proper perspective. As Jesus approaches the city, he is not smiling and rejoicing. He is weeping, literally weeping out loud because of their unbelief, because of their rejection of their king. Again, they wanted a king that would do their bidding. They didn't see their sin. They just wanted Social justice, you might say. They wanted prosperity. So he does not enter the city with joy, but with immense sorrow. We read about this in Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. Tears are flowing now from Jesus. And we read, and when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Of course, that literally happened a few years later in beginning on April 9th, 70 A.D., Titus laid siege in the summer. He slowly starved all of the inhabitants and the Romans came in and systematically slaughtered them, attacking one part of the city and then another. Many of the very people that had praised Jesus a little bit before were slaughtered. Many of them were taken captive to Rome where they were mocked. Many of them were butchered in the Roman circus in the gladiatorial bouts. 
So again, on Monday, Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and he's doing so purposefully, voluntarily, obediently to the Father's will. And why is he doing this? To offer himself officially and finally as the king of the messianic kingdom, just as the Old Testament prophets had predicted. After he did this then, he returns quietly to Bethany. But on the next day, we read that he returns once again to Jerusalem. So we move from the, number one, the presentation to the messianic, number two, proclamation. Early in the morning, Jesus and the twelve approach the city. And as we read earlier, on the way he curses the barren fig tree in Matthew 21, verse 19, saying, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And of course that was symbolic of the judgment that would now fall upon Israel. Uh, For they, like the leafy tree that gave the pretense of being fruitful, was in fact barren because of their unbelief. They did not, according to Matthew 3.8, produce fruit in keeping in repentance. So he enters Jerusalem. Remember now thousands of pilgrims are preparing for Passover. But what does Jesus do? The first thing that he does is he enters the temple and he cleanses it. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? He enters the temple, he cleanses it, and for two days he rules its precincts. He claims possession of it as the mighty sovereign. An amazing thought. And during that time, every strata of official Judaism is verbally attacked by Jesus. There's no seeker sensitivity here. He lays it on them, calls them out. They try to embarrass him, but as they do, he ends up embarrassing them with his answers. He, he even rebukes them openly for their ignorance of Scripture, and he boldly pronounces judgment upon all who reject him. And during this time, he appeals um, to David in Psalm 110 to prove once again his claim to be the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And in his last public discourse, he denounced the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23 with a series of woes, a series of curses. And it was also at that time, according to Luke 21, that he comments on the widow's might that that frankly even demonstrated even further the blasphemy of their works righteous system. And unfortunately, this dear lady fell prey to that deception, how they would prey upon the weak and the impoverished rather than helping them. And she fell prey to that whole scam, thinking that somehow she would just even give her last thing to somehow gain something from them, earn the righteousness of God. And were it not for the popularity that Jesus enjoyed during that time, the popularity by the multitudes, they would have seized him and they would have killed him on the spot. But that was too risky, so they couldn't do that. And as they left the city on Wednesday night, they ascended once again up the Mount of Olives. Those of you that have been there, as I have, you can see this in your mind's eye. They make their way back to the home of Lazarus in Bethany and at the summit they paused to rest and and at the top they could look back over 
the city of Jerusalem. They could view the temple that was built by Herod. And it was at that point that Jesus said to his disciples, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And of course, the disciples went on to ask, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And then at that point, Jesus gives what is typically called his Olivet Discourse, recorded, for example, in Matthew 24 and 25, his longest answer concerning future things, concerning the destruction of Jerusalem that would soon come, but also pointing beyond that to his second coming, and especially the conditions and the signs, the the pre-kingdom judgments that would come upon the world prior to his second coming. So Thursday afternoon, Jesus and the Twelve enter the city. And this moves us to our third point where we remember the messianic preparation. Preparation now is being made for the Passover meal in a private room that they had obtained, obtained earlier. This is commonly called the Last Supper. As evening approaches, which would have been a Jewish Friday, the supper began with a dispute among the disciples about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. I have to laugh at that. All of this is going on, and they're fighting over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And I have to think, well, you know what? Knowing my heart, I would have probably been throwing my hat in the ring as well, right? And you probably would have too. So that's what was happening. That probably was precipitated by the seating arrangement, um, which was very important in that culture. So Jesus rebukes them. Remember, remember, he says that the greatest and true leader must become like a servant. And what does Jesus do to illustrate that point? He is the honored guest, and yet he assumes the role of a lowly servant, and he washes their feet. My, what a rebuke. And during the meal, Jesus exposes Judas as the betrayer, and he departs. Judas had already made arrangements with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus, an event that would, frankly, take place just a few hours later in the garden. And now the final drama of Jesus' death is is set into motion. And at this point, Jesus announces his departure We read of it in John 13, verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. In verse 33, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You will then recall that Peter voiced his undying allegiance, come what may, his undying devotion to Jesus. And Jesus responded that instead, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. The Lord's Supper is then instituted and after a a farewell discourse to his disciples, he departs with the eleven for the Garden of Gethsemane. And somewhere near the garden, Jesus, Jesus offers up a, a, a prayer of, of self 
consecration, of thanksgiving, of intercession. We read about this in John 17, which is commonly called the high priestly prayer. And as they enter the garden, Jesus left eight of his disciples at the entrance and took the inner three with him to the private recesses of an enclosed uh, place there in the garden. You see, Jesus' sufferings in the garden were so intense that even his disciples would not be able to watch it. And there in unimaginable anguish, our precious Savior sweat drops of blood on our behalf. And there three times he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but that I will be done. Then in the middle of the night, Jesus emerged from the garden and three remarkable events suddenly occurred. Number one, Jesus is betrayed by a kiss from Judas. Secondly, the Sanhedrinists arrest him. And then thirdly, his disciples abandon him in fear, even though Peter and John followed him from a distance as he was taken to the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. It is still well before dawn now on Friday. And now Jesus will undergo a series of mock trials by the Jewish leaders, Jewish leaders that violated every principle of, of jurisprudence and justice of which the Jews were so proud. You'll recall they spat upon him, they buffeted him, they would blindfold him and strike him and then say, you know, who hit you? If you're indeed a prophet, tell us, who smote you? Well, knowing the outcome had already been determined, long before the trial commenced, Jesus remained silent. He remained silent. He was a lamb that opened not his mouth. During this whole time, of course, this was a blasphemy when he said, that indeed he was the Son of God. And so this fueled their fire even more. So just after dawn, Jesus was formally condemned by the Sanhedrin. He was taken immediately to the Roman procurator, Pilate, who interrogates him. Pilate says, I find no fault in him. But immediately to keep peace with the outraged Jews, he capitulates to their demands and he releases the criminal Barabbas in exchange for Jesus. And then Jesus was scourged. He thought that maybe by scourging Jesus that would appease the Jews. I won't take time to get into it, but the type of scourging that is described here is a hideous torture, an unimaginable torture that kills most people, but it didn't Jesus. So now Pilate reluctantly turns Jesus over to them to be crucified as the rival king. Between the hours of 6 and 9 a.m. on Friday morning, the Roman soldiers made sport of him. They mocked him as they escorted him to Golgotha, where he was offered a narcotic, which he refused. And then there between two thieves, 
our precious Savior and King was crucified on our behalf. This brings us to our fourth point, the Messianic propitiation. In 1 John 4.10 we read, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The term propitiate in the Greek helosmos means to satisfy or to appease. It means to placate. He was our hilosterion, the one which satisfies, the one which propitiates. Literally, he was the sacrifice of atonement. And you will recall that all of this was illustrated in the Old Testament. Remember in the tabernacle as well as later on in the temple. There was the Holy of Holies. No one could dare enter that inner sanctuary that housed the Ark of the Covenant. The only person that could enter would be the the high priest one time per year on Yom Kippur, meaning the Day of Atonement. And inside that Ark, a box made of gold, according to Exodus 25, was the Covenant, the Law of Moses, the Holy Standard, the Sinaitic Covenant. And above the ark and on each end, you have the golden cherubs with outstretched wings symbolizing how they are guarding the holiness of God. And then between the cherubs, you have the brilliant, ineffable, dazzling light of the Shekinah, the very presence of the living God, hovering above the mercy seat between the outstretched arms of the cherubs a light too brilliant to be seen by the fallen eyes of man. But there was a lid on top of that ark. It was a golden lid of separation, separating the law within from the holy presence above. What did that symbolize? Why did God do do this? Well, because the law had been violated and God cannot be contaminated with sin. But dear friends, that golden lid of separation had absolutely staggering implications for every sinner who wants to be reconciled to a holy God, to have peace with God. For it was on that lid that divine justice and grace came together symbolically with the high priest when he would sprinkle the blood of an innocent animal to make atonement for the sins of Israel. And that lid was called the mercy seat. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the term hilosterion, the place where the just wrath of God was symbolically propitiated. That mercy seat was the place of propitiation, where fury was temporarily appeased, where God's anger was temporarily satisfied, symbolically so, and his vengeance upon sinners was placated, all pointing to the coming lamb that would be the perfect and final sacrifice. We read about this in Exodus 25, beginning in verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony. You must understand, dear friends, that the Old Testament sacrificial system merely pictured the ultimate and the final propitiation, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And only through his sacrifice can man who has violated the covenant law ever enter into the presence of the glory of God. There is no forgiveness of sins apart from the shedding of blood. That's what was pictured. During the first three hours when Jesus was on the cross from about 9 a.m. till noon, Jesus spoke three times. First, he spoke a word of compassion for his enemies, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Secondly, he spoke a word of compassion for the repentant thief, saying, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And thirdly, he spoke a word of compassion to his mother and to John. He said to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And John, he says, Behold thy mother. Then at noon, darkness fell upon the face of the earth and lasted until 3 p.m. And during this time, dear friends, Jesus spoke four more times. First of all, there was a cry of unimaginable anguish of soul when he experienced the spiritual death for the elect and the broken communion with the Father that he experienced on our behalf, something we will never experience. And there he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And secondly, there was a cry of agony when he said, I thirst. Then a cry of triumph when he said, it is finished. And then a cry of commitment when he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And with that, dear friends, in the darkest hour of human history, the Lamb of God exercised his will and released his soul from his body, which was in keeping with his prior statement recorded in John 10, in verse 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Indeed, Christ was the sovereign over all things, including the sovereign over death, and he was the sovereign over his resurrection. Then at the moment of his death, three miraculous phenomena instantly occurred. First of all, the veil separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies was rent in two from top to bottom, bottom, demonstrating that it was God that did it, not man. This was a massive veil. It was about 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, about six inches thick, made up of 72 squares, magnificent embroidery. In fact, periodically they would have to clean the veil and it took 200 men to move it they had a certain elevator system so that they would not peer into the Holy of Holies. Now all of a sudden that magnificent veil is rent in two. This signified that now access has been, been made available into the presence of God through a new and a living way, right? Through Christ. And secondly, another phenomena, the earth shook and the rocks were split. Matthew 7, or 27, 51. And then thirdly, the graves in the area around Jerusalem were suddenly opened. According to Matthew 27, beginning in verse 
52, many bodies of saints which slept arose after the resurrection of Christ. These went into the city and appeared to many. And then before sundown, the Roman soldiers came to break the legs of the victims to hasten their death, but they discovered that Jesus was already dead. Which, by the way, was further proof that indeed he had died, but to make sure they pierced his side. And then two courageous Sanhedrinists came on the scene, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and they came forward to identify the body of Jesus, to claim him for burial, and they took him and placed his body in a garden tomb nearby. And then at the request of the chief priests and Pharisees, Pilate sealed the tomb and set up a guard around it. And so Jesus was buried sometime before sundown on Friday. And there his body laid all of Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath. But then just before sunrise on Sunday, the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And this leads us to the final point of our little outline, the messianic pronouncement. We read about it in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Beloved, herein is the messianic pronouncement, proof that he was indeed the Son of God as he said he was. Speaking of the divine sonship of Christ, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1-4 that he was declared the Son of God with power, how so? by the resurrection from the dead, declared the term horizo in the original language. We get our word horizon from that. It carries the basic idea of marking off a boundary or a limit or a, of a place or a thing. And, and even our English word horizon speaks of, of, a, of a demarcation line between the earth and the sky. So it means to determine, to distinguish, to define. And the point is the most irrefutable and compelling evidence that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God as he claimed he was is his resurrection from the dead. You see, only God himself can give life and only God can conquer death. Dear friends, I invite you as well to come and see the place where he was lying. See that the stone at the sepulcher has been rolled away. He is not there. He is now at the right hand of the Father. Gaze upon the slab on which he laid. 
the God-man who was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's not there. His work is finished. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father waiting to return. And everyone in this room, within the sound of my voice, wherever you are, around the world, know this, that you will see him one day. The question is, will you see him in terror or in triumph? Will you see him as your risen Savior and King in whom you have placed your trust or as your righteous judge who will sentence you to an eternal hell? So dear friends, I offer you Christ this morning. I pray that you all know him and love him. I hope that you see him not merely as a means to some end, but the ultimate an all-sufficient, all-glorious end in himself. The ultimate end of the gospel is not just heaven, it's Christ in all of his glory. Oh, I hope you know him. And may it never be said in this life or in the life to come that you were not warned because this day you have been warned that Jesus is the Christ. And unless you place your trust in him as your only hope of salvation, you are eternally damned because of your sin. But all the glory and the grace of the cross. Dear friends, won't you trust him today? And those of us who know and love him, I pray that we will know and love him even more. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the eternal truths of your word that... Speak so directly to our hearts. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will cause each one of us to bear much fruit because of what we have heard today, that we might enjoy more fully every expression of your grace that you have lavished upon us because of our union with you. Thank you that as believers, we are forever hidden in Christ and how we long for his return. Even so, Jesus, come quickly. We thank you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.